You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Greg Stokes and Doug Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. Today is uh, Tuesday. Doug got back in town from a trip yesterday. How was your trip, Doug? That was great. Sarah and I went down to the Tulum area. There's a direct flight from New Orleans to Cancun. It's like an hour and 45 minutes. And customs coming back into New Orleans, there's no international flights coming in. So it's basically like traveling domestically to the Caribbean. So it was awesome. We had a great time. Three nights without kids. Kids stayed with my in-laws. And so uh, we basically used that up for the year and are planning for our our 2023 trip when we can drop them off again. Right. I know that it's been a, um, your oldest Anderson is what, five now? Is that right? It's about to turn five. I mean, your youngest, you just had your new, your new baby Sally about eight weeks ago or something like that. Yeah. 13 weeks. Right. It's been, you guys have been in the baby making mode for the last like five, six years. So it's gotta be nice to be able to like finally exit that period and, and go enjoy yourself. That's right. We're done. And so, yeah, that's like, we've been talking about this for a couple of years as to, you know, what are we going to do after we're finished having kids? And so first trip of hopefully many. And now that like, especially that COVID is, it's obviously not over. There's variants that are still around, but we're sort of acting like it's over just because we're vaccinated, boosted, and we just got over Omicron. And so we've got like 15 layers of protection against COVID. So now we can we can get out and get all over the place. <laughs> right. In that regards, I saw the Financial Times posted an article for this is for in Britain at the outset of the pandemic. COVID was like more than 20 times more deadly than the seasonal flu. And for vaccinated and boosted groups with Om- Omicron, it's this latest variant is is less deadly than the seasonal flu. And so I'm hopeful that what you just did and is something that, that we can do personally and that other people start to feel more comfortable doing that hopefully COVID is in the rearview mirror and there's not any sort of more deadly variants that come out. But as it stands right now, it looks like the latest variant for people that are vaccinated and boosted is not not anything more than the, the seasonal flu, essentially. Yeah, I think, well, even if it's endemic and it's around year in and year out, I think people are just growing to live with it accept the risks. And if you have some sort of, whether you have a comorbidity or if your immune system compromised, I think you just be a little bit more careful than, than you were prior to COVID. But I think it's something that people have accepted. And it seems like, I mean, especially in New Orleans after Mardi Gras, they lifted vaccination mandates, lifted mask mandates in Mexico, the mask and vaccination or mask mandate was lifted. And so it basically seems like everything's completely normal now. Let's hope it stays that way. It's interesting, and I think it's really important from a couple of different aspects. I'm, I, For anyone that knows me, I am super passionate about travel, and I think it's really important from a couple of different aspects. Number one, you and I are both in similar sort of age cohorts. We're in our mid-30s, mid to late 30s. And from a, just a pure time standpoint, we spend so much time with our children. I think it's nice to be able to connect with your spouse and you know, on a one-on-one setting and travel is a way to do that. I'm looking at a chart right here, the way that Americans spend their time by age. It wouldn't surprise anybody, but 
basically from your 30s till your your mid 40s is like the peak from when you spend the most time with your children and then it really tails off and so it's really nice to be able to get out and and spend some time with your significant other and just from a pure psychological standpoint there's studies that have shown that travel is one of the best and experiences in general like concerts or whatever is some of the best money that you can spend from a just pure enjoyment standpoint yeah it just definitely feels more sort of like a mental refresh compared to just plain consumption for the sake of like a dopamine jolt, like whether it's buying something expensive or doing something like that and having an experience like that. And it doesn't have to be anything extravagant, just doing something either with your kids or with your spouse or with the entire family. It's, it's something that brings a lot of joy. I, I saw that same chart and we're sort of in the thick of when you're in your thirties and forties, spending all your time with your your kids were in the thick of that. And then it, and it drops off completely after that, as kids get out of the house and they move on, they have their own lives. And it's sort of, it's amazing to see that in chart form because right now it seems like constant hysteria. Right. That time spent alone part of the chart. Right. looks kind of fantastic right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that really starts picking up as you would imagine when you're, when, you know, when you're, when you're mid forties, when your kids get out of the house. I found it kind of interesting because we haven't really, you tend to go, you and Sam tend to travel a lot more than, than we do without kids. And so this was the first time in a while that we've left our kids and probably, you know, a year or so that we've left our kids with somebody at home. And so we were like worried about them missing us and, and things like that. And I, I honestly don't even think our kids noticed that we were gone for three days. Like it was completely seamless. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's probably the hardest. We have similar age kids. We have eight, seven, and three or something like that. And they change their, they have birthdays all the time. So I can't keep track of, you know, when one turns six and seven. But one of the the most enjoyable parts from a travel standpoint for me is just the mornings. Oh, yeah. Because it's so chaotic from a little kid standpoint in the mornings. Well, and the, you're already like preconditioned to wake up at a certain time and and, but the beauty is that you can wake up and like have coffee and read. And what we did was like go work out in the morning. And, and usually it's like just complete chaos Two at least two kids crying <laughs> and trying to get kids stressed and get them breakfast and things like that. And off to school, we're always late. And so anyway, it was a good refresh. I missed by the third day, I missed my kids and I was ready to get back. But as soon as we got there, it was like... I. I was ready to be out of New Orleans and needed a break. So it was good. Anyway, just shifting to markets, one, and I don't know, do you want to talk more about travel? Because there were big news today for, and I'm sure there's people going to be reading about this. I found this really interesting. It's been about 35 days since the invasion, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Markets since the bottom are up more than 10%. And I find that so interesting you have these such major exogenous shocks. And I think COVID is another great example of this where all the news is so bad and you know people are calling and saying, what do we do? How do we react to this? And yet everything goes the opposite direction. That's just an observation, but I think it's, and we have another one of those major headlines today that we can talk about, but what are your just general thoughts around these sort of shocking events and then the jump to conclusions component of it? I've heard a common sentiment or, or thought process about like bear markets and 
just anything in general nowadays versus the way things used to used to function. But it just seems like things happen so quickly nowadays. For example, the March of 2020 COVID shock, the markets moved so quickly. I got that same sort of feeling. And we're not through this whole Russia situation. And this could drag on for a while, but at least the markets have seemed to have calmed down for the time being. Who knows if that's going to last or not? But it just seems like things move so much more quickly than they used to. It used to be like, and that just that goes from the standpoint of technology, et cetera. But it just seems seems like things happen so quickly. It seems like this this just started, and it looks like the news from today was like the first sort of opening that Russia said that they were strategically moving away from the Ukrainian capital Kiev and Kharkiv, which is in the in the uh, northeast of Ukraine which is a sort of like a, I think it's a tacit admission from them that things are not going according to plan and that they were going to shift gears and try to go back to the original objectives of the invasion, which was to try to conquer the eastern part of Ukraine and the Donbass. So it seems like things are moving very quickly. And that's just my general observation in terms of everything, in terms of the Russia and COVID and technology is a lot more quickly than, than the things used to happen in the past. I find it interesting though. I mean, all of the news pre Russia Ukraine hasn't gone away. I mean, the the we were in sort of a correction period before that happened, and and a lot of that was like corrections in the Nasdaq type stocks that were high growth, high valuation, with the idea that if we have rising interest rates and rising inflation, it really hurts those types of companies. And and the reason for that, at least theoretically, is is that these companies have cash flows that are way out into the future and you have to discount them back in time and higher interest rates reduce the value of those cash flows so the companies should be worth less. So that's the theory. That really hasn't gone away. Inflation pre-Russia Ukraine is still high and Russia and Ukraine should increase in that inflation rate and and obviously the Federal Reserve has indicated that they're raising rates. They raised it by 0.25% in March. And the expectation is that they'll raise the federal funds rate by half a percent in May. I'm just very surprised that that those types of stocks, those have really been the stocks that led the that have led the rally from late February to today. And it's almost like that in, that pre-existing inflation and rising interest rate narrative has been put by the wayside, and the entire focus right now is on Russia and Ukraine. So I think it's super interesting, and I think this, so that narrative hasn't changed. And part of the sort of like the leaders of that sort of downfall in stocks and high growth names were obviously a lot of the SaaS software as a service companies, but also the Chinese technology companies just really got absolutely hammered like Alibaba and JD, which are like sort of like a the Chinese version of Amazon that had been a real winner over the last several years had just gotten really like their prices were off probably 60, 70% from their highs. And those have really recovered tremendously as well, too. In just a matter of days, the Chinese government came in and said that they were going to essentially be accommodating to the markets. That goes back to my point of how quickly things move nowadays relative to how they did in the past. And I'd be really interested to see kind of like how this is ultimately going to pan out. But if that is the case, my question to you is, do you think that people are going to become more accustomed to these sorts of like flash crashes or flash bear markets is sort of like par for the course. Do you think that could potentially cause some like some systemic risk in the markets because people are so used to that that they may turn a blind eye to, to these types of events and, and shrug them off? 
I really don't know. I mean, I think it's the volatility component of it is here to stay. I think there's really two pieces to that. First is this, the frequency of information flow. And basically a lot of this is immediately traded. So there's not really any sort of thought process that goes into what are the implications of this particular headline. It's a lot of computers that are driving money flow and and it sees a headline or picks out some whatever algorithm they have, picks out tidbits from news stories and, and trades based upon that, positive or negatively. And that really exacerbates the upward or downward volatility. I also think a lot of that is is there's a lot of leverage in the market, whether it's options or it is hedge fund short selling or it's margin debt or things like that, where if there's debt on it, if there's is essentially illiquidity in a, in a particular company, it really exacerbates the movement up and down. So I think a lot of it is the information flow is so rapid and gets processed so quickly without really even consideration for implications. It's just bad news or good news gets traded. And then I think there's just a general lack of liquidity related to leverage. And that leverage takes the form of options. It takes the form of short selling. It takes the form of margin debt or other types of portfolio-based loans. So there's a lot of derivative action that just didn't exist in earlier earlier iterations of markets that are at play now. I think the, the your point about the algorithmic trading is also sort of well taken too, because you have these instances where they've got these hedge funds and, and high frequency traders have these models that, that will basically pick up on the momentum that, that's happening in the markets and will trade to exacerbate that one way or another. And that can also cause these big swings in the market. But I think it's also, and this is just, you know, sort of the shameless plug, but there is tremendous amount of volatility. And and we've gone through a lot of these sort of periods, but it really does. It's really difficult to get through a lot of these periods without having like a plan in place and a strategy, because otherwise it can be really emotionally difficult to get through this. And we talked previously about the psychology of efficacy of spending on experiences like travel and how that is something that you get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of spending on experiences. But it can be really psychologically difficult if, you, if you've got a lot of money invested in the markets and you have to go through these types of periods. Yeah. I also think it increases the benefit. And we've talked about this. We have, I don't know if we've talked about this on a podcast before, but a lot of our clients are aware of it. And we did a recording with uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy about 18 months ago that's on our website. But the level of volatility and and equities just improves the use case for direct indexing and custom indexing. And basically what that means is instead of owning the S&P 500, you own the component parts. So each individual stock or a representation of the market in by individual stock form versus by owning an index fund. And because of high levels of volatility of each one of these underlying companies, you can harvest the loss of the ones that are down by still tracking the index that you're you're benchmarking yourself against. And so I think this the level of volatility in markets won't go down. And that just improves the use case for something like direct indexing or tax loss harvesting versus just buying the index fund itself. Yeah, I think that's that's a hundred percent right. Also, from a psychological standpoint, that's I think that's like a tactical way to get through this high volatility and and use it to your advantage while also tracking an underlying benchmark if you had that sort of direct indexing strategy. But from a psychological standpoint, what we find is it, it's good to have 
for people that are that do potentially need a portion of their assets from a psychological standpoint, those assets in over a you know defined period of time shouldn't be invested in the markets because if you have like your next month's living needs in the markets and you're watching this kind of thing, it can really be difficult from a psychological standpoint. And studies bear that out as well too, from the standpoint of the sort of the people that have a lot of assets. Like, for example, like somebody that has a lot of illiquid assets like real estate, there's a greater psychological benefit for people that have liquidity and cash on hand. Even if you have more assets, you may not be as psychologically have as well as high of a sense of well-being as if you had a significant amount of cash. And so it sort of cuts against the general thought process that people have that I need to have every single dollar of mine invested in the markets or invested in real estate or whatever having a lot of cash on hand really does just from empirical studies help get people feel better. And that definitely helps in our perspective from the standpoint of allocating assets outside of the markets and in terms of getting through these difficult times. Because they, th- what we saw, and we, like I said, we may not be through this. I mean, we get, I don't know how far the markets went down at one point. They're probably down 15 or 16% or something like that. Um, they've recovered quite a bit of that. But having an allocation to cash or fixed income to draw down upon if these periods get more extended really does help from a psychological standpoint. And the same thing goes for just a cash, you know, just having a substantial amount of cash on hand just for for just your overall well-being. So speaking of uh, maybe not getting through this, I think the big headline from, the, and this is going to get released in a few weeks, so uh, maybe this is o- over and done with by the time this comes out. But the big headline from today is that the yield curve inverted. So the two-year treasury so you can go out and buy a, a, a government bond with a two-year duration, has a higher yield than a 10-year treasury. So let's just talk about the significance of that as it relates to really planning around volatility and markets and, and maybe extended periods of drawdown. So let's just start with the, the inversion of the yield curve and, and what has that historically meant? Well, it, just the pure inversion where the short-term yield is higher than the long-term yield has signaled recession or recessionary environments. There's been like the last yield curve inversion that we had was in 2019. And there hadn't been a recession, I don't think, since, you know, I think 2012 or 2011 preceding that. And lo and behold, we had a recession in uh, 2020. The general theme from uh, yield curve inversions is about 12 to 8. They're, they're like a leading indicator. And about 12 to 18 months later, typically a recession will occur. Of course, who knows if they're predictive or it just as happens to be correlation. Like the recession that occurred in 2020 was a result of COVID and lockdowns, et cetera. And the yield curve did not predict that we were going to have a global pandemic. So it's it's by no mean no means a guarantee that we're going to have a recession, but it's one of a one of the more reliable indicators that are, that's out there that that a recession might be on the horizon. We talked about it last time that stocks do pretty well in recessionary times historically. Um, they're not always positive, but from an average standpoint, over a certain period of time, the markets were I think we talked about it, between three and four percent average return during uh, recessionary environments over a certain period of time. So everybody understands, Doug, what does it mean Like, if investors want to be short and buy short-term treasuries more than long-term treasuries? And so the, to explain how the, the demand dynamics work and, and why that the market's sort of signaling that a recession might be in the works. Yeah. So really the way that this 
at least in theory works is the Federal Reserve and they and the Fed has gotten a bunch of headlines lately and we we talked on last week's podcast ad nauseum about Chairman Powell and the actions that the Fed will will make. So we'll we'll leave that for last week's podcast, but but really the Federal Reserve has control over rates at the very short end of the curve and this is something that we really talked about with Colin Roche on on that podcast. And so the overnight rate, which is Fed funds rate, all the way to the really the two-year rate or, or a little bit beyond it, is largely an anticipation of Federal Reserve action. And so the two-year rate is somewhere in the neighborhood of, what, 2.4% right now or 2.3%. That's the market anticipating that the Federal Reserve will hike interest rates basically to that level within a two-year time frame. And so it's pre-pricing that in. Where the longer end of the yield curve, 10 years, 20 years, 30 year bonds, the Federal Reserve has really not a whole lot of control over that. That's very much market driven. And by market driven, it's bond market investors' anticipation of future growth in the economy. So if you have high growth in the economy and the expectation that years out in the future that growth will be sustained, then the interest rates would be higher longer out 10, 20, 30 years. And so really what an inversion of the yield curve basically says is that the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates to a, a level higher than the economy can really sustain, and it will cause a, a slowdown in economic growth. And so largely inversions of yield curves are driven by policy error at the Federal Reserve level. Or recessions that result from a inversion of yield curve. Yeah, exactly. Right. This is not a this, this is sort of a rule of thumb, but it's not like you said related to COVID. The inversion of the yield curve in nineteen did not signal a global pandemic. It basically signaled that the environment that we we're in was a slowing economy, and then we had a slowing economy going into a, a global pandemic. Right which caused a recession. This is basically just saying that the economy is slowing or expect, expected to slow in the longer term at the same time where the Federal Reserve is trying to combat growth and inflation, resulting inflation by raising interest rates. And they, the, the market is saying they'll likely get that wrong, which would cause recession. Right. Right. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And of course, what ended up happening in the 2019 period was, I think, the Fed hiked rates one or two times. And that's what the the, inver- the version in the yield curve was signaling. And then what ended up happening was, of course, shortly thereafter, we had a global pandemic, which caused a recession. So that, you know, the, the Fed policy probably didn't really play into that a whole lot. But it is sort of a predictive rule of thumb that we have in our industry that there's sort of recessionary environment maybe in occurring in the next 12 to 18 months. But of course, anything can happen one way or another. And even in the case of a recession, historically, returns have been positive. And leading into those recessions, like the, I can't remember who said this, but basically you get, before you get a, a bear market, you generally get these blow off top runs in markets. And so what Peter Lynch used to say was there's a lot more money lost in anticipation of bear markets than in the bear markets themselves. And so if you view the headline of, oh, yield curve, recession's imminent, we got to get out, that has historically been a bad strategy. And so the general rule here is you anticipate recessions are going to occur over a lifetime, multiple recessions. 
and you design a portfolio in accordance with that sort of logic and the portfolio will blow up from time to time. There's nothing you can do about it. And the, the gains will go to the ones that can stick through these, these sorts of volatile periods and, and be the buyers when everybody else is a seller. Exactly. Well, we're coming up on our time today, just, uh, from the standpoint of travel and experience, like Doug mentioned, it's something that I'm very, very fond of. And, and I know Doug and Sarah are getting back into the swing of things now that, now that they can, and, uh, look forward to continuing that discussion. That's something we really like to do personally. And I've got a, a nice full slate this summer and we'll be recording from a lot of those places. In the meantime, I hope you guys like and share our podcast and uh, otherwise enjoy life and, and try to book that next trip. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.